You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of Season 8. I hope you all had a great Christmas and celebrated the new year in style. Before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Standing at around 5'6 or 5'7, Napoleon was actually taller than the average Frenchman at the time. The reason why everyone said he was short was to kind of lessen his aura i guess make him seem like he was less important than he was just to take him down a peg or two our second and final opening icebreaker segment is this random quote of the day don't judge each day by the harvest you reap but by the seeds that you plant that was robert louis stevenson a scottish novelist that said that this week's case was suggested via instagram by listener and patreon member jane harding We're back in the city of Bristol this week, a place we visited once before on British Murders. I'd usually run you through five quick-fire facts about our location at this point, but I gave you a whopping seven last time. So instead, I'm going to point you in the direction of my episode covering the murder of Bijan Ebrahimi for some facts about Bristol if you're interested. It was episode seven of season four. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners, As always, listener discretion is advised. Usually I'd start by introducing our story's villain, but I'm going to change things up a bit this week and instead focus more heavily on the life of a young woman whose life was cruelly taken while she was still a teenager. Rebecca Marie Watts, more commonly referred to as Becky, was born at Bristol Royal Infirmary on June 3rd, 1998, weighing a healthy 6 pounds and 12 ounces. For her parents, Darren Goldsworthy and Tanya Watts, this was an experience they'd been through previously when they welcomed their firstborn Daniel, known as Danny, into the world three years earlier on February 19th, 1995. February 19th is a date to keep in the back of your mind as we progress through this story. Darren and Tanya had met in a local pub in Bristol some years earlier when the pair were 29 and 22 respectively. When they met, Darren was a sheet metal engineer and Tanya was a carer working at a retirement home. Before Becky was born, the couple were in an on and off relationship and Darren was subletting a flat from his friend when their daughter was conceived one night in October 1997. Tanya popped over to Darren's flat, one thing led to another and she fell pregnant. You may wonder why Darren didn't just request a DNA test to confirm whether or not the child was his. Back then, DNA tests weren't as easily accessible and affordable as they are now, so Darren put off buying one. He didn't have the surplus funds available to do so. By the time Becky was two, though, Darren was in a better financial position, so he went ahead and ordered a DNA test. It came back as a match. Becky was Darren's daughter, and as is the case with most father and daughter relationships, she was the apple of Darren's eye. They shared the same hazel eye colour and Becky grew up adopting many of Darren's mannerisms. Despite the DNA test results, it didn't change anything in relation to Becky's birth certificate, which had a blank space in the section that requested the name of the child's father. That missing piece of data would later come back to haunt Darren during a particularly difficult period of his life. I'll come on to that shortly. 
As a child, Becky was affectionate, but also had the ability to push one's eardrums to their limit. She could sometimes be demanding and made it known through ear-piercing cries when she was unhappy at not getting her way. As the father of the young daughter with a similar demeanour, I can empathise with Darren there. Early into the new millennium, Darren was now in a relationship with a woman named Angie who had a son of her own. His name was Nathan Matthews and he's the main villain of this week's episode. He stayed with his grandma through the week and his mum at weekends. His dad wasn't in his life. A lover of all things technological, Nathan was a dab hand with computers and formed a close bond with Darren's son Danny. The pair were thick as thieves by all accounts. Nathan was, I believe, 11 years older than Becky, which would put him at 14 in September 2001 when Becky was three and Danny was six. It was during that infamous month that the two children of Darren and Tanya were taken away from their parents by social services. That monumental decision was due to concerns over their care when they were staying with Tanya. The children were placed with a foster family whilst an investigation was carried out, though they were allowed to see Darren, Angie and Nathan at weekends. I imagine those visits will have been supervised though, which can't have been a pleasant experience for anyone involved. A torturous four months passed before Darren was granted an interim care order by the family courts, which enabled Beckett and Danny to stay with him until the case's final hearing in March 2002. At that final hearing, Darren was granted a residence order. He finally had both of his children back living with him full time. Becky grew up as a pet lover who also experimented with her creative side through arts and crafts. She constantly drew things and even messed around with modelling clay. Being read to was something Becky loved, with the classic fairy tale Little Red Riding Hood being one of her favourite stories. I discovered during my research that Becky's first word was Nathan, the name of her stepbrother. It pains me to reveal that information and you'll find out why soon. By the autumn of 2003, Becky was five and attending the same school as her older biological brother, Summerhill Primary. Despite being extremely confident around her family and at home, Becky struggled to bond with her fellow pupils at the school. Thankfully, her cousin Brooke also attended the school, and Becky did make one close friend named Hope, but apart from that, she had little to no friends. When Becky's time at Summerhill came to an end upon the completion of year six, the transition to high school was also not a smooth one. Her best mate, Hope, ended up being sent to a different school, placing Becky firmly back at square one friend-wise. Worse still, Becky was bullied by some of the other girls that attended her high school, which only made her confidence shrink even further. The taunts made towards her were aimed at her weight. According to Darren, Becky was far from overweight. She still had some puppy fat, sure, but absolutely nothing justifies bullying in my book. It's every parent's worst nightmare. One of them, anyway. Believing she was the size of a house when she absolutely wasn't, young Becky asked her dad if he would let her use his punching bag and multi-gym to help her become more active and shed some weight. Naturally, Darren was happy to accommodate Becky with this request, but he had no idea how far she would take her weight loss journey. Becky was so obsessed with her appearance and losing weight that she slowly began restricting the amount of food she ate to the point where she eventually became painfully thin. The bullying at school continued, which led to Becky playing truant without informing Darren and Angie. It was only when the school wrote home to ask why they were homeschooling Becky while she was enlisted at the school. Shocked and no doubt furious, Darren assured them that Becky was not being homeschooled and he had some strong words with his daughter. To make matters worse, Nathan found it hilarious that Becky was obsessed with her weight. 
He would call her fat, much like the bullies at school, which made the one place she could escape and feel safe, her home, no different to the place she considered to be hell. It's worth remembering that Nathan will have been in his early 20s during this traumatic period of Becky's life. He was a grown man mocking the struggles of a 12-year-old girl that had been part of his family for many years. Becky's weight plummeted to 5 stone 3 pounds. That's 73 pounds or around 33 kilograms. The average weight for someone of her age at the time was 6 stone 8 pounds, which is 92 pounds or 41 kilos. She was taken to be assessed by doctors at the Riverside Adolescent Unit in Bristol, which offers inpatient and day patient care for young people with mental health problems such as eating disorders. Becky was soon diagnosed with anorexia and required weekly meetings with a child psychologist as part of her treatment. One foreshadowing comment made by Becky during one of those meetings, which both Darren and Angie attended with her, was, I don't feel safe on my own or with my older brother Nathan. She only felt safe when Darren and or Angie were at home with her. Initially, when no progress was made, Becky was going to be taken on at the facility as an inpatient, but her displeasure at the decision was so extreme, it was agreed she could stay at home instead. Having said that, if no progress were made at home after a few weeks, she'd have no choice but to become an inpatient. To be fair to her, Becky kept the promise she'd made to her dad that she'd start eating more food. Within eight months of being threatened with becoming an inpatient, Becky was back up to a healthy weight for her age just before her 13th birthday. By the time she was in year 9, Becky was regularly helping new starters at the high school, year 7s, feel more welcome. She wanted to prevent them from feeling isolated and alone, as she had during her initial high school years. She received an award for mentoring the younger pupils and was known as the school's most kind-hearted pupil. At home, her love of animals was clear as day to see. Amongst her many pets were a terrapin, two white rats, two Siberian dwarf hamsters, three bog-standard hamsters, a rabbit called Buster, and a cat called Marley. Dr. Doolittle, eat your heart out. It wasn't all good news though on Becky's journey to recovery. Due to missing so much school through both truancy and her time spent at Riverside, Becky was falling too far behind her fellow pupils with her schoolwork. As a result, she was removed from high school and sent to the Bristol Hospital Education Service to continue her studies. She was 14 at the time. Her experience there was the polar opposite of her old school. She made two close friends right away named Adam and Courtney. I guess that makes sense because her new institution taught children who missed school for long periods due to health problems. They likely had a fair bit in common. Eventually, Becky began dating, and by the time she was 15, had met a boy named Luke Oberhansley, who, according to Darren, was a perfect gentleman. Speaking of dating, let's switch back to discussing our villain, Nathan Matthews. Years before Becky struggled with anorexia, Nathan became seriously interested in girls when he was 18. I say girls rather than women for a reason. His first proper girlfriend was someone with whom Nathan was only in a relationship for a few months and it led to some dangerous stalker type activity on his part when they separated. Nathan would regularly park his car outside a house and stare at her bedroom window. It wasn't until the girl's mum contacted Nathan's grandma that her grandson was confronted. According to Nathan, his ex owed him a sum of money, £400 to be precise. He was simply waiting for her to repay him. He certainly wasn't stalking her. Relationships not lasting long were a common theme with Nathan, but it wasn't until one day when he was 19 that his more sinister nature first made itself known to Darren. 
Nathan had parked his car outside the family home at 18 Crown Hill in the St George West district of Bristol. With him inside were four incredibly young girls. The oldest they could have been was 12. Darren was furious and ordered Nathan to take each of the girls home, which it's assumed he did. If you're wondering what Nathan did to earn money, he started an apprenticeship with an electrician's firm at 16, but left a year later when the company closed down. He did ad hoc work as a delivery driver for various takeaway businesses in the local area, but soon had to give that up due to persistent and painful problems with his back. He would eventually be diagnosed with fibromyalgia, a long-term condition that causes pain all over the body. In 2008, Nathan brought home another young girl whom he introduced to his mum and Darren as his girlfriend. Her name was Shauna Hoare, also known as Shauna Phillips. Her other surname, Phillips, is another tidbit of information to remember for later. Shauna didn't have the greatest of childhoods and was placed into the foster care system before attending junior school. She was swapped between various foster families, for what reason I'm not sure, before eventually returning home to live with her biological mum when she was 13. On the day she was taken to meet Darren and Angie, Shauna claimed that she was 19, when in reality, she was just 14. Darren knew she was underage and essentially banned Nathan from bringing her over. Regardless, the couple stayed together and two years later, when Shauna was 16, Nathan, who was 21, shoved her birth certificate in Darren's face in what he no doubt thought was an aha moment. The reality was that he'd basically confessed to having been a paedophile for the previous two years at the very least. 16 is the age of consent in the UK if you're wondering why Nathan did that. Darren had also previously demanded to see Shauna's birth certificate when she was first brought to the house. Now granted access, Shauna was idolised by Becky, who desperately wanted the older girl to be her friend. Instead of granting her that wish, Shauna was persistently rude and callous towards Becky whilst being all nicey-nicey around Angie. Her relationship with Nathan was toxic from the start, and I'm not even talking about their age difference. Nathan became jealous easily and had a temper, which Shauna used to enjoy summoning by flirting with other men in front of him. He became possessive of Shauna and controlled her finances. He never left her side. His self-care suffered as a result, which led to his appearance becoming dishevelled and his behaviour becoming more rude and arrogant by the day. That brings our timeline very roughly to 2011, a year in which two life-changing moments happened. Firstly, Danny, Becky's biological brother and Darren's son, decided to move out of the home he shared with his dad and sister. After turning 16, Danny moved back in with his mum, Tanya. Later that year, Angie was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, or MS. The NHS website describes MS as a condition that can affect the brain and spinal cord, causing a wide range of potential symptoms, including problems with vision, arm or leg movement, sensation or balance. Problems with her vision is exactly how it started with Angie. She woke up one day and couldn't see anything. She had to ask Darren if her eyes were open. It must have been terrifying. Her vision returned over the next few months, but after that, she received her diagnosis. Angie was significantly weakened by her condition and would later require the permanent use of a wheelchair. Darren and Angie tied the knot on August 31st, 2013, and roughly 200 guests attended their wedding. Nathan continued to terrorise Becky, who was now legally his stepsister, after the wedding. The only motive for doing so appears to be his jealousy of how close his mum and Becky were. Angie and Becky had an incredible bond that he perhaps didn't have. Nathan would jump scare Becky constantly and scream in her face. 
He also continued to put her down whenever she showed the smallest shred of confidence. Poor Becky's fear of being around her stepbrother only increased after that. The next big family milestone came when Shauna fell pregnant with Nathan's child. Darren optimistically thought this life-changing event would be the making of Nathan, but there were still signs of him voicing his dislike of Becky. When she showed any interest in Shauna's bump during her pregnancy, Nathan would angrily reply that she would never be allowed anywhere near the baby. Becky would be left in floods of tears, and Darren would just be left scratching his head, wondering what the hell just happened. By March 2014, Shauna offered to help take care of Angie due to her worsening condition. In return, she would receive carer's allowance. The monetary incentive of being labelled as a carer was the only thing Shauna was interested in. She barely offered Angie any assistance and did far less than you'd expect a paid carer to do. On February 17, 2015, a Tuesday, Becky made her way downstairs at around 10pm and asked Darren to make her some food, a pizza and some garlic bread. Even though he was frustrated at how late Becky always seemed to leave it before requesting food, Darren did as he was asked and took the food upstairs to Becky's room once it was ready. As she ate the food in her bed with her favourite show Jackass playing on the TV, Darren took himself to bed. A few hours later, at 3am, Darren woke up and thought he could hear noise from Becky's room. It was her telly. She'd fallen asleep with it on. Looking at his beautiful Bex fast asleep in her bed, Darren Galsworthy had no idea that it would be the last time he'd see her alive. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. That evening, Becky stayed over at her friend Adam's house. He was one of her two close friends from the Bristol Hospital Education Service. The day after that, February 19th, 2015, is when our timeline took its darkest turn. Becky often had issues getting her house key to work, so when she got home at 8.30am that morning, she had to knock on the door and get Angie to let her in. Darren had already gone to work by that point. Becky going upstairs to her room was the last time Angie would see her alive. At 11am, Angie's mum pulled up to the house to collect her. She had a hospital appointment and was relying on her mum for a ride. Angie was out of the house for almost two hours, returning at 12.45pm. She spotted her son Nathan's car in the driveway. He'd popped over to the house with Shauna while she was out. That afternoon, Luke, Becky's boyfriend, popped round and inquired about his girlfriend's whereabouts. He had grown concerned over her lack of responding to his texts. The last exchange of texts between the couple went like this. Luke, 11.02am. I'm back, babes. Becky, 11.03am. Goody. Jamming me. Luke, 11.21am. Sorry for long replies. I'm having to pace it. Luke, 12.09pm. I'm done in the dentist. Luke, 12.46pm. Oi. Luke, 1.38pm. Becky, oi. Luke, 2.46pm. Hello. It was after that last message of hello when he went over to the house. Shauna was the one that answered the door to Luke and, after checking her room, advised that Becky was not at home. She explained that she seemed to recall hearing the front door slam earlier when she was out the back garden having a cigarette, so Becky had probably left and was staying with one of her mates, something she often did out of the blue. Nathan and Shauna stayed at the house until 7pm when they made their way home. He was living with Shauna and their baby at that point. Concern grew as to Becky's whereabouts on Friday, February 20th, 2015. Each of Becky's friends made their way to her house because none of them had any clue where she was. Nobody had heard from her since she responded to Luke's message the previous morning. Darren was then called at work at 2.30pm by Angie, who asked if he knew where she was, to which he worryingly replied that he didn't. 
The police were subsequently called at 4pm by Darren once he'd arrived back home. The worried father continued to leave voicemail messages on Becky's phone to no avail. He drafted in the help of Nathan to post a message on Facebook which read, Please share, missing 16-year-old girl, please private message. That message would go on to be shared a total of 887 times. It makes me sick to think that Nathan offered to help Darren post that message knowing what he'd already done. Darren and Angie were assigned two family liaison officers who explained that it was crucial that they allow a forensic team inside the property to acquire DNA samples from items such as Becky's toothbrush. A press conference was held on February 23rd, 2015, with Darren and Becky's grandma on Tanya's side making heartbreaking pleas for their baby girl to come home. The initial forensic investigation then grew in size. Darren and Angie were put up in several hotels over a period of nights, with the cost covered by the police. They were kept in the dark as to what was going on until March 3rd, 2015. Russ Jones, one of the two family liaison officers, called Angie on her mobile. Darren could tell by her face that something significant had been muttered on the other end of the line. Once the call had ended, Angie told Darren that the police had arrested Nathan and Shauna. The couple were originally arrested on suspicion of having kidnapped Becky, but their charge was soon upgraded to murder. Russ and his colleague Joe Mark swiftly made their way to Darren and Angie's hotel room to update them on what the forensic teams had discovered. On the evening of March 2nd, 2015, police officers made their way to Number 9 Barton Court, a house occupied by a man named Carl Demetrius. Neither Darren nor Angie had heard his name before, so they were baffled when Russ informed them that some body parts had been found in Carl's shed. The body parts belonged to Becky Watts. DNA taken from her toothbrush confirmed her identity. Back at Darren and Angie's house, the forensic team had discovered traces of Becky's blood on her bedroom doorframe, along with a fingerprint belonging to Nathan Matthews. That was sufficient evidence to justify an arrest, an event that was recorded on police body cameras and is available to view online. In total, six people were arrested in connection with Becky's murder. Both Nathan and Shauna faced five charges, murder, conspiracy to kidnap, perverting the course of justice, prevention of a lawful burial and possession of two stun guns. Carl Demetrius, his twin brother Donovan, Jadine Parsons and James Ireland all faced charges of assisting an offender. They all played some role in the transportation of Becky's dismembered body parts to Carl's house, though it's debatable as to whether or not they were aware of what was in the packages Nathan asked them to transport. Here's what happened on that fateful February day. Nathan and Shauna arrived at 18 Crown Hill shortly after Angie had departed for her appointment. Armed with a face mask, a stun gun, handcuffs, tape and a large bag, Nathan made his way inside Becky's room and attacked her. He claims that his mask slipped, revealing his identity, which led to a panicked struggle between the siblings. Despite her best efforts, Becky succumbed to Nathan's onslaught and was strangled to death. Her body was then placed inside the boot of Nathan's car until they left the house at 7pm. Back at Shauna's, Nathan stabbed Becky 15 times in the stomach in an attempt to drain all her body fluid before cutting her body into eight pieces using a circular saw. CCTV footage was later identified that showed Nathan purchasing the saw, amongst the other items he used, at a local B&Q hardware store. Gruesome internet searches made by Shauna also came to light, including her watching a YouTube video titled Do You Want to Hide a Body? A morbid parody of the song do You Want to Build a Snowman from the movie Frozen? Nathan's paedophilic tendencies were further evidenced when some of the text messages he and Shauna sent each other were read by police officers. 
One such exchange took place on December 5th, 2014, two months before Becky's murder. It went like this. Shauna. Just went to Costcutter and saw a pretty petite girl. Almost knocked her out to bring home, lol. Nathan. Don't you almost me. Now do it, bitch. Becky Watts' funeral was held at St Ambrose Church in Bristol on April 17th, 2015. It was the same church Darren and Angie got married in. Around 500 people attended the service conducted by Reverend David James. Despite admitting to the police that he had killed Becky and informing them where her body parts were, when asked in court how he wanted to plead, Nathan said not guilty regarding the murder and conspiracy to kidnap charges. He then pleaded guilty to the remaining three charges. Shauna decided to plead not guilty to all five of her charges. Carl Demetrius and Jadine Parsons pleaded guilty to unknowingly assisting an offender, so they were involved in the trial, whereas Donovan, Demetrius and James Ireland pleaded not guilty. That meant that a total of four people were on trial for various charges when it began at Bristol Crown Court on October 6, 2015. As a sign of solidarity, Becky's family members that attended the trial all attached baby blue ribbons to their lapels. Baby blue was Becky's favourite colour. The trial lasted just over five weeks and concluded on November 11, 2015, after the jury of 11 women and one man retired for three and a half hours before reaching the verdicts. Nathan Matthews was found guilty of murder and conspiracy to kidnap. Remember, he'd already pleaded guilty to the other three charges he faced. Mr Justice Dingermans handed Nathan a life sentence on November 13, 2015, with a minimum term of 33 years. Shauna Hoare was found not guilty of murder and instead found guilty of manslaughter. She was found guilty of each of the other four charges she faced and handed a 17-year prison sentence. Donovan Demetrius and James Ireland were both found not guilty of assisting an offender. Earlier I told you to remember a couple of pieces of information. The first was the date February 19th. That was the day Becky was murdered by her stepbrother in 2015. It was her biological brother, Danny's 20th birthday. The other piece of info I told you to remember was Shauna's alternative surname, Phillips. The name Shauna Phillips was used to purchase the two stun guns in January 2015. It came to light in early 2016 that between them, Nathan and Shauna had received just over 400 grand in legal aid whilst they were on trial. The funds were spent on solicitors and advocates. That's absolutely sickening. Thankfully, Nathan had the first stage of an appeal against his conviction and sentence thrown out in March 2016. An online article from November 2017 revealed that Nathan had been attacked by a fellow prisoner and was left with severe burns after having boiling hot ghee, a type of clarified butter, poured over him. The man responsible was Royston Jackson, who was serving a whole life tariff for murder at the time of the attack. Royston has since passed away from cancer in March 2019. Shauna has also reportedly been subjected to brutal attacks from other prisoners whilst behind bars. She regularly gets the shit kicked out of her by the sounds and has had to be resuscitated on at least two occasions. Darren will undoubtedly be happy to hear that his daughter's killers are receiving such brutal treatment in prison. A 2018 report from the Bristol Safeguarding Children Board revealed that Becky had been failed by 17 experts from 8 service providers in the years leading up to her murder. She was unable to build the necessary trust and rapport with anyone due to the constant changing of the guard, as it were. She revealed to a caseworker in March 2014 that she had sent explicit photos to one of her male peers and he was threatening to share the images online. Becky was petrified that her dad would discover the photos and kick her out. Darren said he was not given the parental support needed to help his daughter through that difficult period of her life. 
Despite those failings, the report concluded that Becky's murder could have in no way been predicted or prevented. Becky Watts will forever be remembered as Bristol's angel. And that was the story of British murderer Nathan Matthews and his accomplice Shauna Hoare. Thanks again Jane Harding for suggesting that case. My outro spiel is going to be pretty long this week as I've not released a proper episode for a few weeks, so please bear with me. Or just switch me off if you like. The story portion of this episode has concluded. I want to give a big shout out to Darren Goldsworthy. His book, Becky, the heartbreaking story of Becky Watts by her father, Darren Goldsworthy, was an invaluable resource for my research this week. I highly recommend you pick up a copy if you'd like to hear more about this case. I'm going to link it in the description for you. Continue listening as well to hear about a giveaway I'm running. The winner will receive two true crime books, one of which is Darren's. I've got nine new reviews to read this week. Amy left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled American Admirer. It reads, Discovered this podcast recently whilst browsing Spotify and I love it. It is marvellous to me how you give a wonderfully sympathetic, solidly researched and yet at moments laugh out loud hilarious narratives to these dramatic cases. Since moving away from the US, I live in Chile now, I have become somewhat of an Anglophile and definitely enjoy the accent. Your voice is easy to listen to and I enjoy a couple of episodes after the kids are in bed to help me relax. Side note, I heard you read a review from another American in season 5 episode 2 and I about died laughing. Typical American attitude regrettably and total bunk. Your American accent is on point FYI. Pofro left a 5 star review on BritishMurders.com titled Fascinating. It reads, British Murders is a concise podcast without all the needless faff. Interesting cases, some lesser known ones too. Engaging delivery from Stuart, highly recommended. Alfie Turton left a 5 star review on BritishMurders.com titled Amazing Podcast 100% Recommend. It reads, My first thing to say is thank you for making these amazing episodes. They are very good and entertaining. I found you after my brother recommended you to me and I have fallen in love with the show ever since. The icebreaker segments are so cute and the five quickfire facts about the town or city are very good and interesting. A story that may be good for a season special is the story of the Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe. Again, thanks so much for making the podcast. Can't wait for more as unfortunately I have now caught up. Keep up the great work, mate. I will cover Peter Sutcliffe at some point. Lalita M left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts Australia titled Thank You. It reads, I've been listening to you for a while after your appearance on Reddit on Wiki. Shout out Reddit on Wiki, by the way. But your most recent episode on Harold Shipman and the respectful and empathetic way you treated the victims just matters. Thank you for the podcast. I love the daddy facts. Keep being you and podcasting. Des Ackerman left a five-star review on Apple Podcast Canada. It reads, I love this. <laughs> Did you know that in Yorkshire they are injecting ecstasy into their mouths? They are calling it e-by-gum. Love that joke. Great accent and great podcast. Perfect length. Keep them coming. I'm an expat living in Canada and drive one of those big rigs up to 650 miles a day, so your podcast has kept me well entertained. Have you heard of Michael Stone in Northern Ireland? You should add his murderous antics to your list. He was quite the guy. I highly recommend your podcast. I have added it to my list, Des. Thank you. Sarah Jane Grant recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying... I found this podcast after listening to the lovely Scottish murders with their wee bonny accents. This guy is fantastic, easy to listen to, great voice and a massive range of episodes which is great. I listen on Spotify, follow you on YouTube and now on Facebook. Waiting for the second part of Harold Shipman episode. Must have been an old review of this. 
couldn't find how to leave a shout out on Spotify, so I gave you a five star review on here instead. Can we have some more recent murders? Keep up your great work. It's paying off and I often recommend to friends and family members. Claire recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, I listen to this podcast while I'm working early mornings. I'm currently on season five and love it. The episodes are short, making them easy to listen to, but to the point, you get a great snapshot of the goings on. Stu shows full respect to the victims and never divulges family members of the victim or murderer. He clearly puts a lot of work in to gain the facts before recording. A great listen and highly recommend. Andrea Claire Lewis recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, I absolutely love this podcast. Stuart has a lovely calming voice and style that makes these really easy to listen to. I've been binge listening for a few months. I'm almost caught up. The special guest interviews are a really good added bonus. Highly recommend. Keep up the good work. And finally, Alex Taraz, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, Alex, recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, clear, factual and easy listening. Also loving the interviews. Thank you, Amy, Pofro, Alfie, Lalita M, Des, Sarah, Claire, Andrea and Alex for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode? You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Danielle Hill, Kimberly James, Emily Linford and Mark Serlis. Thank you as well to Pofro for buying me three beers via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Nice one, mate. More, please, was the message left. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out too. I'm currently running a competition to win two true crime books on my social media pages. If you want to enter, head over to Instagram, Twitter or Facebook, follow my page and like the giveaway post. The winner will be drawn and announced this Saturday, January 7th, 2023. That's it for this episode. A long, long outro there. It's been a while. It always happens on the first episode of a new season. But for now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.